Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. Our text shows us something about prayer and the God to whom we pray. The bulk of it is taken up with how to talk to the sons of man. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me when I was in distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your face upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Father, you have heard us and relieved us in our distress more times than we can count or recount. Give us the grace then to listen to your word, to pray your word, and to act out what we learn from your word. Give us the opportunity to speak to the sons of man just as your king does. Help me to speak powerfully to your people. Raise us all up into heaven that we might see the glory of the Son of God who is your king, your anointed one whose glory cannot be tarnished by the most diligent efforts of the sons of men to shame him. Father, we thank you that Christ will be blessed and that he will be glorious. Teach us then to glorify him as well. We pray through listening even to this sermon tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. At first glance, the poem before us is a prayer. Hear me when I call, O God. But on second glance, we see that though it begins and ends with prayer, the middle section, verses 2 through 5, 2 through 6a, are taken up with an address to this group, the sons of man. I think many of us have wondered how exactly we're supposed to reach the non-believer. We know it's good to evangelize. We know it's good to find our co-workers, or find people in the community and tell them, Jesus saves. You have problems. The Lord could really help you with those problems. But how do you do that without being burdened by guilt, perhaps, on the one hand? Many people have experienced that guilt that some preachers try to put on them. Get out there and evangelize. That's the calling of everyone to be an evangelist. And this psalm does not radiate guilt in the slightest. It ends with lying down and sleeping peacefully. This is how to evangelize from a place of peace, a place of rest, a place of joy. The psalmist is driven, yes, by the needs of the sons of man, 
who will show us any good. But he's also driven by just the joy that he has when God puts gladness in his heart. The king, God's king is anointed with gladness. And in this psalm, he presents this perfectly balanced account in which he energetically confronts the sons of man, but he does so from a place of peace and rest and prayer. God's king energetically confronts the sons of man and evangelizes them aggressively, but he does so from a place of prayer and peace and rest. Our efforts need to begin and end with prayer. That's what the psalm is telling us as it starts with prayer and ends with prayer. If you're trying to raise children, pray before you do it and after you do it, right, on a daily basis. If you're trying to love your spouse, pray before and after. Valentine's Day is a good day to pray. If you're trying to write sermons, fix engines, round up drug dealers, herd cattle, drill for oil, or any of the many other things that the members of this church are called to do on a daily basis, pray. Pray before and after. If you have to deal with the wicked, as many of us do, particularly in our day jobs, go to the Lord for help. The king is confronting the sons of man, and he doesn't start the psalm with verse 2. How long, O sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? He has to say that. But he doesn't begin there. He begins with, God, help me. You've helped me before. I need your help now. Two things drive the prayers of the king. He's driven by need. Verse 2 is very open about that. The king has two major needs. The first is that the sons of man are shaming his glory. There's the language of therapy, the language of psychology. Shame. Shame is a feeling that most of us know all too well. Shame is the opposite of glory. Glory, as I talked about last week, I think, glory is your boast, the best thing in your life, the fullness and the honor that make everything else worthwhile. Glory is weight or weightiness in the Hebrew conception. That's what the root word means. The glory of God refers to his weight. He is massive. Eli is described, Eli the high priest in, at the beginning of 1 Samuel. He is glorious, says the text. Better translated, fat. Eli is a fat man. When he falls off his chair, he breaks his neck. He's so heavy. That word is also used to describe glory. Glory is the thing you delight in everyone knowing and admiring. Shame is the opposite. As I just said, shame is the thing you hate anyone knowing about because they will despise it. What is the king's glory? How long will you turn my glory? The king has glory. He's not afraid to mention this glory. His glory is not in his physique, his chiseled six-pack. His glory is not in the chariot that he drives. It's tricked out with fancy rims. No. The king's glory is in his relationship to God and especially in his status as the Lord's anointed. That's what the sons of man are attacking. They're finding the king's glory, his status as God's Messiah or anointed one who is to do God's work in the world, and they hate that. 
They want to turn that into shame. The sons of man attack the Lord's anointed and they say, being the Lord's Christ is the job of a fool. That's what they're telling King David. We talked about this at great length last week with David fleeing from Absalom, his son, and many saying, there is no help for him in God. That is shaming the king's glory. The talk of Jerusalem is David's political skill has left him. He offended and alienated his best-looking son with the best hair and the most ambition, and there is no way he has the political capital to win this one. It just isn't going to happen. We talked about that at length last week. That is shaming the glory of the Lord's anointed. And it happens today when people take the Lord Jesus Christ and they say, he's on his way out. The rising tide of secularism is eventually going to swallow up and overwhelm all of the churches and they'll all be converted into apartment buildings and museums and we'll all live happily ever after. They take the glory of the Son of God, the glory of the Lord's anointed, and they turn it into shame. How long has this been going on? How long, O sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? This has been happening ever since the fall. The world does not regard it as glorious to be God's Messiah. The world regards it as pathetic. And when the king's glory is shamed like this, he takes himself to prayer. And so should you. And he doesn't go to his therapist who tells him, oh, you're actually a wonderful person. Don't feel bad. Feel glorious. No, he goes to the Lord and says, they're turning my glory into shame. Don't let it happen, Lord. And he turns and confronts the sons of man and asks, why will you turn my glory to shame? Why will you attempt to make me despise the fact that God has anointed me. And the second thing, the second needs that drives the king's prayer is that the sons of man love worthlessness and seek vanity. Right. There's different ways to translate these words, but probably the base translations are lies and vanity, or vanity and lies. Now nothing has changed. Part and part of the world's opposition to God's anointed is its mania for the temporary and the false. Vanity means anything vaporous, anything passing, anything short-lived. It refers to your breath on the cold morning. Breathe it out. There's a cloud of mist that appears for a little time and then dissipates. It vanishes away. The sons of men are in love with vanity. We've talked about this at length as well. The Apostle John defines the world as that which generates human desire and that which is generated by human desire. We've updated the Apostle's language of the world to uh, what the marketing gurus now call the product refresh cycle. Last year's model is no good. Get this year's model. This year's model is all the rage. The biblical name for that product refresh cycle is vanity. It's short-lived. Last year's phone, garbage. Trade it in. Last year's vehicle, no good. 
Trade it in. My brother told me that on the lot of a Chevy dealer or GM dealer in Greeley, Colorado, is a brand new 2021 GMC Yukon. Due to supply chain issues and delays, the thing arrived on the lot in late November. It's a 2021, never been driven, brand new on the lot. The car dealer is saddled with this thing that in the world's terms, well, it's a brand new car, but it's not a brand new car. The product refresh, that's vanity. The thing is designed to be passing. That label 2021 on it, it mainly exists in order for the car company, for the world, to sell you a newer model. This is old. You don't want it. Don't pay new car price for a car that's three years old. The sons of man love vanity. They're all about this product refresh cycle. Not only do they love vanity, the king charges them with loving outright lies. We know all about lies. Lies are the currency of our culture. We call them fake news. We call them CGI, computer-generated imagery. We call them deep fakes, or artificial intelligence that sounds like the president's voice on the phone. We love these lies. They're all around us. Politicians speak them. Bosses speak them. Employees speak them. We have these various ways of trying to get around them, electronic driver logs or things like that. People, sons of man, love lies. So the king confronts this. The sons of man want to shame him and they want to tell lies to him and about him. And they want to love things that are temporary and passing away. So the king... Confronted with that, he prays. His prayers are driven by need. But his prayers are not only driven by need. This psalm is written, as I said, from a place of peace and rest. And the king's <coughs> prayers are also driven by gospel opportunity. He looks at the world and he says, Many are saying, verse 6, Who will show us any good? Not everyone is obsessed with lies and vanity. Not everyone is all about the product refresh cycle and the desires that the world generates and in turn is generated by. Not everyone wants the lies or is more comfortable believing the lies. Those people, the ones who say, where's the good? Show me something good. The king's heart is toward them. Many are saying that. You and I might not like the phrase, many are saying, people are saying. The phrase seems so squishy. A good way of avoiding responsibility for stating what you think. And yet we find the psalmist using it, the king using it, two psalms in a row. Many are saying, there's no help for me in God, verse 2 of Psalm 3. And yet here he says, many are saying, who will show us any good? There are people out there who are looking for good. Last I checked, faith, hope, and love are not for sale in the world's bazaars. They never have been. You can't buy them. In the red light dis districts of Amsterdam or Phuket, you can buy anything. But you can't buy faith, hope, and love. Even the Beatles said so. 
There are people out there who are looking for good. We need to be praying for those people. Their openness should be driving our prayers. The king is also praying because of this second gospel opportunity that earthly goods are not as joyful as heavenly ones. He speaks about harvest time, the time when their grain and wine abounded. For the ordinary man of the soil, there is no better time than harvest. And there's food in plenty, grape juice everywhere, the fruits of the earth are being picked, a year's worth of labor is coming out of the ground and into the barn. And the king says, I'm more joyful in you, God, than I am with all the grain and wine that they have. The joy of being with the Father surpasses the joy of agricultural produce. The people who are looking for good need to know about the best good, the divine goodness. And again, we should pray for them just as the king does. Well, that's the frame. The king prays. He prays before engaging the sons of man. He prays after engaging the sons of man. And within the frame, the picture speaks about speaking to the sons of man from a place of prayer. Now, who are the sons of man? How long, you sons of man? And yes, the sons is plural and the man is singular. This phrase is rendered men of high degree in Psalm 62.10. It seems to carry overtones of elite status or high status. Who are these sons of man? Well, broadly speaking, they seem to be the same as the wicked of Psalm 3. Their goal is to shame the king out of his glory. Their love is disordered. It's misplaced on the temporary rather than the eternal. In our day, we would call them secular. What can we learn from the king's encounter with these sons of man? The first thing to say is that it's okay to question the sons of man. It's okay to stop praying, to open your eyes, and to start engaging with the wicked. That's what the king does. He prays and then he turns to address the sons of man. We can observe, too, that it's okay to push hard against the sons of man when you engage with them. The king does not give an inch of ground. He doesn't say, would you mind giving me just a little space to be myself over here? And he's asking for something much bigger than that. This engagement with the sons of man, these two questions that he asks them, how long will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love vanity and lies? These two questions privilege the king's own moral norms. I think most of us understand that it's okay to engage with the wicked as long as we don't walk in their counsel, Psalm 1. But the king does not give any ground to the wicked, right? He's so far from walking in their counsel that he insists that he is the arbiter of what's vain versus what's lasting, that he determines truth versus falsehood. That he is glorious and he rejects their shame. These things are not up for discussion between the king and the wicked. He doesn't say, from my perspective, what you're saying feels like shame. He says, how long are you going to shame me? 
Right? The question already carries with it the implication that they are shaming him. It's not something up for discussion. The king says, he accuses them forthrightly, you're shaming me. You're loving vanity. You're following lies. Stop it. Well, the king confronts them. Now, we aren't the king. Right? We can't just take everything that the king does in the Psalms and say, we should do it exactly the way the king does it. Uh, my favorite example of that is in Psalm 101. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked out of the city of the Lord. Well, you and I are not king over the city of God. And yet at the same time, obviously that applies to us in our different places and callings as well. Within any institution where you have a measure of authority, it's your job to favor the righteous and to reject and punish the wicked. A boss who says, oh, I'll just let the bad one keep on beating up his fellow employees is not acting, exercising authority responsibly. We'll talk about that more when we get to Psalm 101 and there are other places in the Psalms where that comes up. We're not the king. But I think we need to imitate him on this point of openly confronting the wicked and assuming the moral norms of our God. We need to imitate the king a lot more than we have been. We don't come to the conversation prepared to acknowledge that we ought to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the cross, ashamed of the Lord's anointed. We reject that up front. That is not an item that's negotiable. We will not engage with the wicked and say, you know, I can see why I ought to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. No, we don't do that. We say, how long will you turn my glory to shame? We confront those who want to shame us with our glory. We refuse to let them do it. We refuse to be shamed or to allow their mockery to dissuade us from making Jesus Christ our glory. We also stand openly and brazenly against the wicked when they love vanity and seek lies. We hate vanity. We reject lies. We're not here for the passing. We don't believe in the product refresh cycle. We are here for the permanent. And that's where the king starts as he questions the sons of man. His questions assume that they are wrong, that they are morally wrong. And he doesn't say, are you morally wrong? He says, how long will you keep being morally wrong? That's where he starts. And then he begins to teach them. No is the first word of verse 3. Know that the Lord has set apart for himself the godly one. The king dares to not only confront the sons of man with their wickedness, but then to say, you need to learn some truths, sons of man. He takes his stand on the indisputably Christian ground that he is a holy man set apart to a holy God. First truth he confronts them with then is this truth of holiness. The Lord has set me apart for himself. They want to shame him with that. Oh, you serve God. You serve the invisible flying spaghetti monster. 
the king says, no, God has set me apart for himself. I am holy. That's what it means to be holy, to exist for God. He's set apart for God, and he says forthrightly, I'm holy. You were, that's not a negotiable in this conversation either. My purpose is to serve God, not to please you, or to be the target for your mockery. He teaches the truth of holiness, and then he teaches the truth of answered prayer. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The king is so bold and forthright with the wicked because he has this rock-solid confidence in answered prayer. He doesn't need the wicked's validation or approval because he knows that God answers his prayers. Do you think there might be a connection between the public wimpiness of many Christians and the prayerlessness that robs them of the conviction that the Lord hears when I call to him? We will be unwilling to speak truth to the sons of man unless we are certain that God answers our prayer. If the sons of man are the arbiters of your destiny, you don't want to get too aggressive with them. But if you aren't afraid of what the sons of man can do to you because you know that God answers prayer, you're willing to follow the king, to speak boldly, to question the sons of man in moral terms, to teach them about holiness and prayer. And then, almost unbelievably, the king exhorts the sons of men with half a dozen things that together add up to full and complete repentance and conversion. He tells them, first of all, tremble. And the root word means to shake. And it can legitimately be translated as fear or anger. Now, because Paul quotes this in Ephesians 4, many ver- and there he definitely says, be angry. Uh, many versions render this anger. In terms of the context within Psalm 4, it very clearly needs to refer to fear. Because look at the other five things. Don't sin, meditate in your heart, be still, offer righteous worship, and then even the call to faith. Trust in the Lord. The psalmist starts, the king starts by telling the sons of man, you need to fear God. That's what you need to do. You need to be afraid. You need to start trembling because God is the one you must fear. So he says, because God hears my prayers and not yours, you need to shake with fear. He's telling them to fear God with trembling. At a point we just saw in Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Well, that's what he says. Tremble in fear. And then second, he commands them to stop sinning. Paul's same thing that he gave in the Areopagus. Repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. The king commands these sons of man to stop sinning. Not just to stop shaming him and his glory. Not just to stop loving vanity and lies. But across the board. Don't sin. Then he says, get on your bed and think about what you're doing. Or you... It's like a parent. Go to bed and think about your course of action. 
Meditate in your heart, on your bed, and be still. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Well, when the king speaks to the sons of man who are raging, he commands them as he commanded the winds and the waves, be still. Stop the raging. Be quiet if all you have to say is shame, vanity, and lies. The king's rhetorical strategy is very much to take charge of the situation and to call upon the wicked to become righteous. That's what he does in the next line. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. The king regards God as his righteousness, verse 1. But now the king says, you need to worship the Lord, just like those pagan sailors in the book of Jonah. Get down to the temple, buy yourself a sheep or a dove, and offer a righteous sacrifice. He's full-blown evangelizing these sons of man. He doesn't just say, stop shaming me. He says, start serving the Lord. And the climax is, put your trust in the Lord. Show some faith. Believe in Jesus. That's what he asks the sons of man to do. Better commands the sons of man to do. In just four verses, the psalmist reckons that they can go from shaming his glory to trusting his God. Now we have to ask, is this rhetorical strategy dead? Does it no longer work in the modern world to evangelize people? Has evangelism stopped working? Or have we stopped doing it? Right? The Lord's arm is not shortened. Somehow everyone in this room was converted in the modern world. Apparently. We were made, we were enemies of God, we're now friends of God. We were doubters, now we're believers, we were fighters. Now we're lovers. Question the sons of man. Teach the sons of man. But as you have the opportunity, be like the king who calls the sons of man to the fear of God and to faith in God. Again, as I said, the king does not do this out of guilt. Oh, I got to get out there and talk to the sons of man. He does it from a place of glory. And he does it based on who he knows God to be. There's seven statements that the psalm makes about the king's God. The first is that he answers. Answer me when I call. God of my righteousness. The king's prayer presupposes that God will answer. He's the God who, of the king's righteousness. What does that mean? Certainly at least that, the God, that God is righteous. But more than that, it means that the king's righteousness is derived from God. God has made the king righteous. And that what we call, what the New Testament calls the doctrine of justification or the work of justification. God has taken the king and made him right before him. You have relieved me when I was in distress. This is the God who delivered in the past. This God is gracious. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. That's exactly what God does. He is merciful to the king. He hears the king's prayer. And if we're united to the king by faith, we know that he will be gracious to us and hear our prayer. When did he justify Jesus, by the way? Not that he took away Jesus' sin, but rather he resurrected him from the dead and showed that he was right and the ones who killed him were wrong. What else does the king, what else does God do? Well, he shows his face to us. Verse 6, Lord, lift up 
the light of your countenance upon us. Who will show us good? God will show us good. That's the answer that the king gives to these many who are saying that. God also puts gladness into the king's heart. The source of gladness is not the product refresh cycle, not vanity, not lies, not campaign promises, but the God who makes the king glad. And then finally, the psalm culminates with one final, the seventh statement about the Lord. You alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We might be afraid of getting so bold and forthright with the wicked like the king does. What if they hurt us? Well, the psalm addresses that. God makes us dwell in safety. The king is not afraid of that, not afraid of being hurt, precisely because God keeps him safe. Remarkably, there's really only two things that the king asks God for in this psalm. The first one in verse 1 is to answer and hear. God, listen to me. That's all he asks. Well, the other thing is for God to lift up the light of his face upon us. Show us yourself. Show us the light of your face. To see the face of God is to be blessed. To be satisfied forever. The king's God, the king's petitions. The psalm ends with the king's repose. As he lies down in peace. He earlier called on the wicked to go lie down on their bed. In anger or fear to be trembling there. The king doesn't do that. He doesn't go to bed in fear. He goes to bed in peace. And he sleeps in safety because God keeps him safe. The king sleeps in safety and so do his people. We can lie down peacefully because though the wicked love vanity and lies, God is on the job protecting us. His king is on the job protecting us. So how do we talk to the wicked? From a place of rest, a place of blessing, a place of confidence. Pursue prayer in such a way that you are able to sleep in peace and to talk to the wicked without flinching. No one else can make you dwell in safety, but when God keeps you safe, nothing can touch you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you hear us when we call. God of our righteousness, lift up the light of your face upon us, we ask. Help us to talk boldly to the sons of man, just as your son did. We pray in his name. Amen.